Welcome to episode 334 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and expressing views not shared by our firm, our clients, our institutions, uh, our families, or frankly, even our pets. Uh, uh, and our interview today is going to be with Ronald Debert, who is a Professor of Political Science and, most importantly, at least in my world, uh, Director of the Citizen Lab at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Um, he's also, and we'll be discussing this today, the author of a recent book and set of lectures called Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society. Ron, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me here. Oh, no, it's great. It's great. And uh, uh, if you just can't help yourself, feel free to jump in on the news stories. Uh, but OK, I'm looking forward to it. We'll we'll wait for you on the uh, interview. Uh, and then uh, for our news roundup, we've got uh, uh, a slightly larger than usual uh, uh, lineup because I asked Charles Heleput, uh, who's a partner in uh, uh, Steptoe's European office, uh, uh, where he does cybersecurity, uh, data and privacy uh, uh, law, if he would join us to talk about a couple of European data protection developments. Uh, Charles, welcome. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. And uh, uh, back, uh, uh, one of our favorites, Mark McCarthy, uh, who uh, teaches uh, at Georgetown University in communications, culture, and technology. Uh, Mark, great to have you. Delighted to be here. All right. And uh, Megan Stiefel, uh, who is founder of Silicon Harbor Consultants and uh, uh, associated with practically every serious cybersecurity uh, uh, NGO uh, in Washington. Megan, it's great to have you, too. Thanks, Stuart. It's great to be here. All right. And uh, uh, David Chris, uh, uh, the, who founded Culper Partners, has decades of experience in intelligence, law enforcement and security issues, including time as the head of the National Security Division at the Justice Department. David, great to have you. Thank you, Stuart. Good to be here. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, uh, now with Steptoe and Johnson and the host and chief provocateur for the day. Uh, the, the, the irresistible story, especially for me, for those who have listened before uh, of the week, uh, really calls for bringing back Twitter's fail whale used to be that their network went down all the time because they didn't have the bandwidth or the servers to support it. Uh, and they used to uh, display a little whale saying, oh, we failed again, uh, uh, but we'll be back. Uh, uh, and it's time to revive it because they had an epic fail uh, uh, last week uh, when they took down any reference to a New York Post story that um, said uh, Joe Biden's son uh, had left a computer with uh, uh, the uh, with a repair shop. The computer was full of compromising emails suggesting that he was trading on his father's connections. Uh, I, but because the New York Post couldn't absolutely guarantee that it hadn't been hacked, uh, Twitter insisted that uh, it come down as hacked content uh, and Facebook did something similar. Mark, uh, uh, can you give us the details? So the, the, um, uh, the, the post, let me start with the post story itself, because I think that provides some context. Um, 
I mean, the the post story was let's let's be honest about it. It was it was poorly sourced, and it probably shouldn't have been run, uh, as the Economist says in explaining why they didn't even mention the story in this week's magazine. It smells like a Russian disinformation campaign. Of course, it wasn't illegal to publish it, but it was bad journalism. By the same token, Facebook and Twitter, they were well within their rights to downgrade the story and limit its distribution in various ways. But the Twitter rationale about hacked material was preposterous. And their decision to block the post's own account was clearly an overreach. This may or may not be, you know, examples of anti-conservative bias in social media, but it was clearly a bad action on the part of Twitter, and their rationale was, as I said, preposterous. Yeah, I think it's probably more a, a, a an example of pro-Biden uh, bias than anti-conservative bias. Uh, uh, but it is kind of uh, the nicest thing you can say about this. I, I disagree with The Economist. This uh, was sourced to, you know, it, it had a plausible source. The contents have not been, still haven't been denied. Uh, some of the more, more damning contents haven't really been denied by the Biden camp. Uh, uh, and uh, it's, it, it, increasingly appears that these are genuine. We'll, we'll see. But I have yet to see somebody, and I know the press is dying to do this, saying these are fake. Um, uh, and so uh, when you've got something like that uh, and it's an exclusive, uh, you run with it uh, and you you give the uh, uh, other people who are involved a chance to respond, and the New York Post did. Uh, uh, but I think that the, the determination that Nothing will be done by social media that could possibly resemble 2016 when they think they inadvertently allowed uh, uh, Trump to uh, uh, to win uh, is what's driving this. They said it could be hacked content and therefore we are going to go to battle stations. Uh, um, uh, but uh, uh, that kind of hair trigger for censorship, it just isn't American. Yeah. Speaking of things that aren't American, though, I, I think we should look carefully at this uh, decision by the Senate Judiciary Committee to call Twitter and Facebook to talk about these decisions. I mean, you know, Senate, Senator McCarthy used to call people in when he thought he could find another communist in the State Department or in Hollywood. This, this is getting to be pretty ugly stuff when in the middle of an election campaign, you start to call in the heads of media networks to explain their editorial decisions. Well, if you think they are biasing the uh, the ground on which the election is being fought, and I, I, I think it's fair to say that that is true. This is potentially a very big issue. Right? Uh, and uh, uh, the decision to limit its scope, to suppress it, I think the uh, Twitter has still said we're not going to let the New York Post have their Twitter account back until they delete the uh, uh, the stories that we now would say would not violate our policy. But they, since they did, then you have to delete them if you want to uh, uh, get your account back. It's 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 weird at best, uh, and uh, I think it's fair to ask these guys. So what the hell they think they're doing? There's going to be legislation. There's all this pending legislation all over the place about uh, um, uh, what to do about social media. It's a legitimate concern. Uh, and uh, yeah, it might, uh, it might prevent them from expressing their views 
by censoring other people. Uh, and I'm not sure I, I, I much care about that. Uh, uh, meanwhile, you know, the, the, the FCC has said they're going to start working on the referral of um, uh, jurisdiction uh, or a suggestion of jurisdiction from uh, President Trump. Uh, and they've got a pretty good argument. The uh, the claims that there's no legal support for the FCC uh, regulating in this area is surprisingly thin, um, uh, as which is pretty much what the FCC general counsel uh, decided. Um, and I don't know what uh, Mark, if you had a chance to read. Uh, Justice Thomas's concurring opinion in the denial of cert in a Section 230 case. Um, but, I, you know, when I saw the coverage of it, I thought, well, this is just like a uh, one paragraph statement that uh, he thinks this is an important issue. He goes, does an elaborate uh, analysis of uh, uh, Section 230 and what he contends is a, a gross overreach on the part of the lower courts in interpreting it. Yeah, it's 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 a thoughtful piece. Um, now it depends on sort of what you want out of uh, two thirty reinterpretation or reform. I mean, some people want to read into the act a kind of right of carriage, so that those whose material has been removed can argue that that the social media company has to reinstate it because its removal wasn't in good faith. But you can't really create an access right out of whole cloth. Congress can do it, and maybe they should, but they didn't do it in two thirty. Thomas seems to be much more concerned with extending liability for leaving the material on the network rather than creating a right of access. And he did a pretty good job interpreting that. Um, on the other hand, the FCC, I'm not sure what they're up to, but it seems to me it's mostly noise and maybe politically motivated noise in view of what happened to Mike O'Reilly. I mean, the, the FCC might want to exercise authority over social media companies, and maybe ultimately it might be good to give the FCC that authority. I've actually argued for it. But the plain fact is they don't have that authority today. That's what I thought. I always thought, well, that's crazy. This is the, this is computer services. But I, I, looking at the, uh, the way the law is structured, basically the FCC is given authority over a big chunk of the communications uh, uh, code. Uh, and then Congress comes along and drops 230 right into the chunk over which the FCC has jurisdiction to issue rules. Uh, is there something wrong with that? Maybe I, I didn't look closely, but it sure looked like that was a pretty strong argument. There's nothing there. They have no authority over social media. Uh, I mean, there's nothing that they, if, 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 there, if there was authority over social media, you know, the old FCC under Tom Wheeler would have extended their privacy rules to those guys. And they found no ability to do that kind of stuff. Well, but, you know, that's 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 saying that they're, that social media isn't covered and maybe it isn't. But Section 230 is just a small piece of, of social media. And that is exactly in the part of the law that the FCC has interpretive authority over. Right. I, I think you're wrong. I think it has about as much relevance for the courts who do enforce the statute uh, as my interpretation of the statute or yours. Now, on the other hand, and this is your real point, along with Thomas's dicta, this stuff does seem to raise the profile of 230 reform further up on the national agenda, even if the FCC's views are just irrelevant. Yeah, I actually think this kind of cries out for 
a more something more than episodic judicial uh, interpretation that it would make sense to have a regulatory body that has uh, a, a consistent theme and then can step in before uh, a case gets to the Supreme Court uh, and you have to take five years to find out what the law means uh, and and say you know here's what good faith means the good faith is a is a term that doesn't define itself. Uh, and it's perfectly reasonable, I think, if you want more transparency to build that out of the, the good faith clause. Yeah, I, I, we'll have to see what Congress makes of this because they're clearly the agency that has to take the action. Should the platforms have a special exemption from liability for allowing defamatory material or revenge porn or something like that? I'm sort of with Danielle Citron and Ben Wittes on that. The platforms have to take some minimum level of care against illegal material in order to, to earn this exemption. But how to write something like that is just a mystery to me. I have no good suggestions. But there still needs to be a greater balance between their responsibilities and the limitations on liability. Yeah. So which, mean, which means that we have to tinker with 230. The question is, is it open heart surgery or is it a Band-Aid on their finger? Uh, and, uh, you know, I, since I think it's going to be exploratory surgery to find their heart, uh, it, uh, that's that's what I support. Uh, uh, OK, uh, we, we are we are going to hear more about this uh, endlessly, as, as uh, listeners know. Uh, uh, Megan, take us to something a little more directly cybersecurity related. Uh, um, it, the ransomware attackers have started specializing their economy even more than they did up to now. Yes. So a couple of uh, intelligence reports from a number of companies selling their selling their services, essentially highlighting that, that rather than having to work to gain access to, for example, a corporate network, uh, the ransomware perpetrators are now buying, essentially buying access on the dark market. So cutting off part of the, um, the early phases of their activities and, and essentially allowing them to, to focus their efforts on uh, not having to so-called pop the box, but actually moving laterally within a network and identifying the, the, probably in many cases, not the most likely, but anyone who would be willing to click the link and um, therefore thereby facilitate the, the exploit of, of ransomware within large uh, networks. So it looked to me as though uh, the, the, the business proposition here is if you are truly a basement nerd, uh, uh, basement dwelling nerd with uh, who does nothing but break into networks. Now you don't have to worry about actually getting, you know, making the ransomware work or anything. You just sell your access. You you get in, you leave your uh, um, uh, your connection uh, and you sell the connection for between three hundred and ten thousand dollars to somebody who can turn it into an entire ransomware scheme. Is that more or less what's going on? Yes. So it's a further sort of commodification of cybersecurity services that we've been watching for a number of years and decades probably at this point. So I, I'm going to try out on on you the idea that I, I put up on Twitter. You can tell me if it's crazy. I think this is one where Cyber Command could build some elaborate honeypots that look like corporate networks or government networks uh, full of information. Now, it's it's tricky to, to generate plausible uh, uh, honeypots or honey networks, but it's doable. Uh, 
and then you, s- you go online and start selling access to the honeypots to people that you really want to take down because as they move through your honeypot one you find out what their tactics are but two you probably are going to get an opportunity to uh, um, uh, rehack them and to start extracting information from their networks uh, uh, so it seems to me maybe there uh, this is a uh, specialization of the hacking market that could come back to bite the uh, uh, the ransomware artists? Well, I would tend to agree with the latter point. Um, I might ask the question on the former point, so who, who's, who's best positioned and who's rightly within the scope of their authorities to, um, to be forming these honeypots to do essentially investigative activity? Of course, we can debate about where they might best be positioned, but I, as I think you know, I don't uh, necessarily favor cyber command um, in that type of a role, I, I prefer that they keep their quivers focused on on, on actual military. I think fair enough, Stuart. Your theory. I, don't you think anybody? That, yeah. I, I, it sounds like your theory could also extend to say a dib company creating a special subdirectory on its network that is uh, forbidden and marked off, and you may not access. And then they'd plant a nit, like in Operation Playpen, there, so that when the bad guys come to the actual company's website and go to the forbidden zone, they bring home a little beacon with them. Is is that sort of in keeping with your theory? That is exactly it. I, I think it probably would be safer and uh, more fun to to, to create a, uh, a a company with a, a fake network for a company uh, uh, so that you, there's no way to get from the uh, fake network to the real network. And since you're selling access, you know exactly what access point you're selling um and then you just uh, uh, uh use the fact that they will be spending some time on the network to uh, um see what further information you can extract from them i i don't think there's a legal problem with this david uh, under the cfaa it's your honeypot so you're authorized to do anything you want with it. Uh, at some point, you might need authority to uh, uh, follow the beacons or extract information from the other um, uh, the, from the attacker's network. Uh, but if you're working with government, that's not going to be a problem. All right. Um, let me ask another legal question, and David, I'll ask you. Uh, there are a lot of uh, hair on fire stories about how um, Google is answering uh, requests or search warrants uh, in which people don't actually identify who they are, they suspect, uh, uh, but instead are looking for people who have uh, searched about a particular person yeah. who then was the victim of a crime. Yeah. Uh, is that is, is there a legal problem with that or is this just more um, uh, lefty problemization? <laughs> Stuart, thanks for that uh, nice flat tee up there. Um, yeah, it's um, it, there's a legal issue, I think, although um, uh, probably not as big a one as folks might want. Um, this this story that's been circulating comes out of the uh, investigation of the musician R. Kelly, 
about whom and about which I know very little, fortunately. Um, but in that case, he's a, he's, a, he's a great artist, but a but a but a, uh, a but a shocking child abuser. Yes, well, I'm, I'm neither familiar not familiar with any part of his work in either category. But um, I guess he he, d- he once did a long song about uh, hiding in the closet uh, uh, with his uh, because he was having sex when his girlfriend's boyfriend came home. It was hilarious. Uh, well done. Um, but I, 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 I've lost track of his career since then. Okay. Um, in this case, in somehow connected to him, there was an arson of a vehicle in a kind of a low-density residential neighborhood, uh, and the investigators wanted to know, you know, who searched for the street address where that arson occurred. So they said to Google, hey, Google, with a search warrant, who searched for the address, you know, at the time just before the arson? And Google gave them a couple of IP addresses, uh, which they were able to figure out either by looking in public databases or maybe by subpoena that Verizon uh, had, uh, you know, serviced and provided. And then I guess by subpoena, they learned from Verizon that a particular 10-digit phone number was using the IP address at the time of the search for the arson address. Um, And this being the carpenter world, you know, they got a search warrant for the cell phone towers near the arson. Um, and what do you know, the phone was there at that time. Uh, and then they got another warrant for two days of location information on that cell phone, which showed it going from one area into the arson area and then back out again, just at the appropriate times to allow for the burning of the car to occur. And you might say, if you were naive, hey, isn't this a pretty good digital detective work with lots of warrants and judicial process and terrific, uh, you know, Uh, interposition of a magistrate between the government and the uh, cell phone providers and the data. But the concern is, as you said, that this is basically an abouts warrant because it asked Google to review all of its data on user searches for the arson address to determine, you know, who made that search at the relevant time. So it isn't tell us what the user of this phone searched for at this time. It's tell us which users searched for this address or this piece of information at this time. In that sense, it's a little bit like a geofence warrant where the request is not tell us where this phone was at this date and time, but actually tell us which phones were within 150 yards of the bank at the time the robbery occurred. There's, I think, some real question whether a short-term IP address production would even require a warrant even after Carpenter, which was talking about seven days of CSLI, and this is just maybe an hour of IP address. And I think most people would say that IP address is less sensitive than GPS or CSLI location data. I mean, even that recent, uh, you know, European Strasbourg court decision uh, going after the French and Belgian laws was pretty explicit in saying IP address is just not nearly as sensitive. Uh, So it's, you know, far from clear that there's going to be any traction on this uh, particular instantiation. But there is this kind of reverse lookup geofence, you know, kind of theory that's in the law. And eventually it's going to have to work its way through the system uh, and get litigated. Um, As long as the social media companies or uh, ISPs or other providers are actually, you know, producing and retaining that data for their own purposes, I think it's going to be a bit of an uphill fight for uh, someone to argue that the government shouldn't be able to get after that data, too. So the the best argument I guess I can think of if, if challenged to come up with a plausible argument would be that the minute the government asks for this, 
Google or whoever they're asking becomes an agent of the state and any actions they take to carry out the, 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 the uh, uh, request um, are the responsibility of the state. And when they search through everybody's searches, they are conducting a search on behalf of the government that is a wholesale search of uh, people who are never going to be suspects and as to whom there's no probable cause. I, I think that's completely wrong-headed because the government doesn't get to the benefit of any of those uh, searches. It learns nothing about that. It only learns about people as to whom you say, yeah, if somebody is standing on the street uh, in that uh, uh, or in that neighborhood looking up your address, uh, uh, then uh, uh, at the time just before the attack, it's probable that they uh, were involved in the attack, yeah. um, which I think is the more likely approach. You know, Stuart, I, I, I should say, I mean, I think I do think it's really clear that when Google is executing a warrant like that, uh, it is a state actor. I mean, there's almost no question whatsoever that they are sort of not doing this search for their own private purposes, the way some providers look for child porn, for example, for their own purposes. Um, here, if they're acting on instructions, it's it's very clear. And and I mean, I have expressed in writing some concerns about about searches. That is the idea that you scan the full content of all the information running through a fat pipe or some other uh you know, choke point and filter out based on a review of the contents of those communications, uh, the desired communications that meet your filtering criteria. That feels different, you know, than say carnivore, which is just a packet sniffer looking at the metadata, the the DRAS that's, you know, not as protected as contents. Um, I'm just not sure that theory will extend to something like IP address um, in in this kind of a setting, if you were searching, you know, for other kinds of things, it, it could be uh, and applied in a criminal context as opposed to a national security context. You're probably going to get the government's going to get less traction. Uh, but I don't have any question that Google's acting as an agent of the state when it's executing a warrant like that. It's more of a particularity concern, I think, that is the the catch point on this. Yeah, we've heard from the court for years now about how you have to uh, update Fourth Amendment uh, um, doctrine to take account of new uh, technology. This is a new technology in which uh, you can use uh, your ability to find patterns and say those patterns constitute probable cause, even if I don't know who it is yet. Um, and so this is, I, to my mind, this is 21st century probable cause, and we're going to see a lot of it. Sooner or later, the court's going to have to resolve it. I hope they get a, a case where it makes sense to uh, uh, to take that analysis rather than some edge case. All right. Um, and I'm going to ask you and uh, Charles to dig into two decisions that uh, I think uh, uh, if you were hearing footsteps after Schrems 2, those footsteps got a lot closer. If you're a U U.S. company, uh, uh, the whole ad tracking consent framework uh, was trashed by Belgium's DPA and the provision of uh, uh, cloud services to the French government was trashed by their privacy uh, advocates, the CNIL. Uh, a, maybe, Charles, do you want to give us a feel for what was happening in these two cases? Thanks, Stuart. So, so um, let's do that. Let's start maybe with um, the Belgium piece and the fact that I'm Belgium has uh, no impact that I'm starting with that one first. 
um, but still. So we had a report um, end of last week uh, showing that the Belgium Data Protection Authority closed uh, its investigation on uh, the TSF, so the Transparency Consent Form um, published by um, IAB uh, Europe. And they have investigated uh, bidding and they, according to the report, they are indeed saying that there are serious concern and issues uh, on GDPR compliance. And if you want to hear the list of what they say is not working, I'll just give you. So it's failing to meet the transparency, the fairness and accountability principle, the lawfulness of, of processing and what more. So frankly, you wonder what is left and what they haven't yet properly uh, bridged. <laughs> and on top of that, they also uh, go through uh, IAB itself, so the organization running the, um, the standard uh, alleging for other breaches they um, they um, they have done. What is so, so to, if I could stop you just yep. there for for a second, the significance of this is potentially quite staggering because real time bidding for uh, ads, which is you go to a website and nobody knows what ad you're going to see until they've looked at your data and decided who most badly wants to serve you an ad. So there's this extraordinary amount of exchange of information about you and bids from a variety of advertisers saying, I really want that guy. He's about to buy a car or he's about to buy a couch or uh, he's a uh, he's a weightlifter and I want to uh, sell him weightlifting lessons. Whatever it is, they, they bid against each other and then uh, the ad pops up and you don't even see the um, the back end uh, uh, procedure. But essential to that is knowing something, even if it's anonymized, about the person who is coming to the website. Uh, and that means they have to have consented to that information being shared. And what we had here was a framework designed by the people who do the real-time bidding saying, this is how we're going to enforce the consent requirement. And the Belgian DPA says, yeah, put it in your hat. It's uh, not working. Yeah, and, and, and in fact, what is striking is that they are going against the organization that developed the standard and not against the publisher that are using it for that specific purposes. And, and that's what is really striking because, um, of course, it's fully in line with the Belgium DPA enforcement strategy. Uh, they are against or, or looking after uh, ASEC for a little while. They issued a guidance in that respect uh, earlier on this year. So, so it was clear that that was a, a good suspect. And the fact that AIB is, in, is based in Brussels just give jurisdiction on the Belgian media to go against, uh, against them. But they are really using a kind of massive weapon to some extent because they are really arguing that by the fact that IAB is developing the standard, it is a data controller uh, looking or influencing those who are using that standard on their, for their purposes. So that, that's a pretty far-reaching uh, statement. Um, and, they, and they may well lose in court, right? They, 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 this is something that is going to be fought over. I, and I assume that the motivation there is that they're saying, yo, Irish DPA, put this in your hat too. 
Exactly. And, and so I think that is really much more a function of frightening all the potential users of the, of the framework that um, by incidentally just uh, try to increase its GDPR compliance with publishing a new version of it uh, that was launched in August this year. And it's much more probably noise making uh, for all of those people using the framework saying, look, you, you think that what you do is compliant, but we are having big issues uh, around that one. And it's not the first time that, that we had this. So um, we had other cases in the past where um, uh, we have tried to um, use, let's say, the definition of standard to um, uh, challenge some of the uh, data processing activities that were going to happen because of the standard. Uh, I was involved back in 20. 2014 in a case involving uh, the challenge of IATAS with the airline industry uh, deploying what they were calling MDC, so the new distribution capacity, so a, a new way of collecting data uh, of users browsing uh, airlines' um, website. And we try exactly the same, the same method uh, as the one of the Belgium DPA. Uh, and we went up to the uh, Working Party 29 at the time, so the, the no EDPB, and we received a polite letter saying we will go, we will go, it's a real issue, we are going to investigate and look at it, but we only will be looking at the actual use of those things when it's done. So um, whether or not that will succeed remains to be seen, but it, it's indeed a, a, a powerful weapon, let's say, that, that has been used by the Belgium DPA uh, for the industry, no doubt. Yeah. David, do you got anything to add to that? No, I, I did seem like an aggressive uh, run at the trade association that had set the framework that everybody was using. Um, uh, but uh, And I thought it did seem very aggressive. But other than that, no, I, I thought you guys covered it pretty well. Yeah. And maybe just to that point, it's in fact a kind of litigation strategy that the EU Commission used before in antitrust compliance. So they were looking after trade association to then go against the members. And here they have deployed the same strategy, but who doesn't really serve the same views because there is nothing in IAB where people are actually processing data. They are just processing or produces the standard that will be used later on. So, yeah. So one of my one of my observations is that the, usually the data protection authorities like having the issue, but they don't want responsibility for the disaster. Uh, that that would be perfectly consistent uh, with this. They they get to to be heroes, but they aren't actually going to uh, uh, force the uh, demise of real time bidding anytime soon. Uh, so they get to bask in the attention and not take responsibility for uh, killing the uh, uh, the economic engine. Um, what about the Keneal uh, proclamation about Microsoft, uh, which was providing its cloud um, uh, services for health data? Uh, it, it felt a little the same way. The Keneal had all this bold talk about how it was a bad idea to use Microsoft and then said, so look for somebody else, would you? Uh, but they didn't actually say that the French government couldn't use uh, uh, Microsoft Cloud. Yes. So, so should, should I start with that as well? Please go ahead. And, 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 I read the yeah, uh, report okay. of the decision uh, in my using my schoolboy French. Um, so I'm a, <laughs> I can tell you that um, that's I'm found wanting in that regard. <laughs> and but it's that that one is really um, fascinating because it, it's really showing 
probably um, the, post, the potential aftermaths of SHREMS2. Uh, because if you look at what it is, so the, the health data hub, which is what uh, we are talking about, is basically a platform centralizing health data of the French population. So far, it was merely a, a project. But then with COVID-19 and the need to find new ways to deal with the pandemic, they accelerated and um, deployed the platform um, in April 2020. The CNIL was reviewing that deployment at the time and said nothing, so everything was fine. They subscribed with Microsoft Azure, indeed, as cloud uh, for hosting the data. But the data were hosted in the Netherlands and with the view of uh, being transferred later on on French servers. So we are not really speaking about transfer here. So it's really uh, data located in the European Union. And even the agreement with Microsoft mentioned that there is no possible way for those data to go out. But then we have Strength 2 and a couple of uh, NGOs and trade unions and the like um, ask the French Conseil d'État, so the French Administrative uh, Supreme Court, to um, put on hold all of the processing um, that were done uh, via uh, Azure, just for the risk of the U.S. intelligence services eventually requiring Microsoft to uh, provide data uh, from uh, French citizens. And that's what it is. So it's not even that Microsoft is uh, transferring the data out for its own purposes, but it's just because of the risk that the U.S. might have jurisdiction about data that is located in the European Union um, uh, because of its uh, special, specific power under FISA and the likes. And that's not that's not crazy, right? The uh, uh, the Cloud Act allows the gov the U.S. government to try. It, it allows Microsoft to say, "Hey, it would be a, a violation of French law." Um, uh, but uh, it's not crazy to say, "Well, we're not comfortable with uh, uh, relying on Microsoft to raise that issue in some judicial forum we don't have control over." Yeah, exactly. And, and, um, and what they did in France is, so just following Schrems 2, they uh, then published a decree like precluding any kind of possible transfer, so giving a kind of a French block, blocking statute for uh, those health data stored on the cloud. And what the French Conseil d'État um, held, so pretty fascinating, first it recognized the risk, exactly as you said, uh, Steve. So uh, there is a potential risk for some of those data to be uh, transferred to the to the U.S. at one point, um, but then what they say is that the um, French system needs those data uh, so much to deal with the pandemic that they will not accept to uh, put everything on hold. So the things will continue, um, but they require uh, the Minister of Health to go back to Microsoft and come up with a new addendum in 15 days. So within 15 days, um, they have to come up uh, with uh, increased security measures that will provide some more uh, certainty that Microsoft will not be responding to any of those visa or executive order requests to pass on data to uh, U.S. intelligence services. And the CNIL has to 
uh, assist them in uh, in the process. So, frankly, probably um, the next thing that that will happen is let's just speed back like end October and see where we are because um, that they will. I'm, I'm pretty sure that the the story is not over there. Yeah, I, I predict that uh, we'll still have the issue, but we won't have the disaster because that's what uh, the privacy zealots, uh, that's as far as they can take it. Uh, uh, all right, Megan, uh, uh, two uh, uh, hacking uh, reports uh, from uh, uh, security companies, uh, uh, zero logon still doing damage and the Iranians are doing uh, ransomware. Uh, um, can you give us a little bit of background? We're running low on time, so I'll ask you to be quick. Sure. So the concern here is that, as you, as you noted, and in fact, uh, it's of such a concern that CISA and FBI actually put out a joint um, alert. This was about a week ago, and it was updated a couple days ago, but the, the head of a, being APT actors chaining vulnerabilities against state, local, tribal, territorial, critical infrastructure, and elections organizations. So the concern here is then that not just one exploit uh, is being used by malicious actors to uh, have various deleterious effects on the organizations, but in fact that multiple exploits are then being um, combined together to have uh, an even greater uh, potential amount of damage to the to the targeted organizations. Um, there, of course, is, is some concerning language in the in the announcement about uh, the possibility that um, these exploits may have been in, or excuse me, may have been used in in entities that are connected with. Um, elections, but it does not appear that these targets are, were selected because of their proximity to elections information. So um, as we I, talked about I, with I ransomware, say, Megan, this all sounds, this, this all sounds a little hyped, uh, you know, chain, chaining vulnerabilities is what you do if you're a modern attacker, because uh, you can't get all the way, the everywhere you want to go without chaining them. Uh, and uh, uh, saying, well, there could be some election consequences. Yeah, sure, there could be election consequences, but the, the media has covered 400 of the last three successful election attacks using uh, uh, cyber uh, uh, tools. I, 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 it, it, zero uh, logon is a very bad bug. And if this is a way to say, hey, it's a really bad bug, you ought to fix it. That's great, but I just I don't buy the election connection, and I don't really think that the chaining is uh, that big a deal. Yeah, I think uh, yes, I, I tend not to buy the election connection either. I think the concern here is that 2020 has been kind of a, a crazy year in terms of um, the significance of some of these vulnerabilities that have come out. So um, oh, the 2020, maybe they're trying. Yes, you're right. Everything bad is going to happen this year, yes. and, and we're not done. Well, yet. <laughs> right, right. Um, but I, I, you know, the research community is, is pretty alarmed. I think at the number of, of significant vulnerabilities that have been identified this year, and so perhaps by by you know dabbling with the elections word, they're they're hoping that people will will be more serious and, and actually implement the patches that have been distributed. But I'm with you. I kind of share the, I don't think that's the best way to get people's attention. Not that I have good suggestions on other ways if you haven't succeeded so far, but, um, patch your systems. Big, I think we all know. How big a deal is this Iranian state hackers using ransomware? I, I, I did not think that was the first time I'd heard that. I didn't think so either, but, um, the, the story, one of the stories that we saw was, was on ZDNet. And so they're, they're, um, Highlighting the difference that here, Muddy Water, which was the group that was involved, traditionally has been involved in intelligence collection activities. And in this case, the concern is that they're now kind of expanding their their uh, repertoire of, of bad actions to include um, ransomware. So as we know, the 
the Iranians could kind of be unconstrained in some of their behaviors. So the fact that they're going from collection to action is, is I think, the, the troubling sign here. So in the effort of keeping it brief, I'll, I'll end there. All right. Well, we, we ought to we ought to quickly update things for uh, the what I call the tick chat cases. Uh, um, nothing dramatic, new, Mark. Uh, uh, but uh, on the whole, the U.S. government uh, hasn't yet demonstrated that it can actually get one of its uh, orders banning Chinese social media from the U.S. implemented. Yeah, on, on TikTok, uh, TikTok. The, the the judge that uh, that blocked the uh, uh, the Commerce Department order took a pretty big bite out of the IEPA statute, however well justified by the text of the statute. The appeals court is going to look at that, but but not until uh, you know November twelfth and oral arguments. You know after that, um, the the, uh, the TikTok went back and appealed the broader ruling, uh, and uh, the judge that issued the first one is planning to hold a hearing. On this on November fourth, but but even there, if he if he didn't think the the narrower ban was uh, justified by AIPA, he's not going to approve the broader limitation on TikTok's operation. So uh, I think I think we're going to see uh, that issue continued. Uh, WeChat um, the, the the Commerce Department's uh, order was stayed by a judge on roughly on First Amendment grounds uh, that the, it wasn't narrowly tailored to serve a compelling government interest. Um, U.S. went to the Ninth Circuit, but it's not going to get a ruling on that before December. So they went back to the trial judge and said, here's some more evidence of harm. Uh, the judge hasn't released her ruling yet, but she said at the hearing that she wasn't inclined to change her mind. The argument seems to be about whether the national security harms are real or speculative, but also relevant is the question of whether the remedy fits the crime. The judge seems to think that some lower response could meet the national security challenges. I think the head that 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 judge has her head wedged, uh, but uh, uh, obviously it, uh, the the woman is a is just a magistrate judge, uh, uh, so not exactly what we think of when we think of district court judges. Uh, uh, so I'm surprised that the district court hasn't been pulled into this rather than going to the Ninth Circuit. Um, I and I, let me let me take thirty seconds to. Uh, uh, disclose a hidden rule of English uh, uh, that is uh, described by uh, uh, TikTok, which is that when you have two repeat words with different vowels in the middle, like TikTok, the I word, the I sound always comes before the O or the A sound. So chit chat, TikTok, clip clop, tip top. It always ends with the O or maybe the A. Uh, uh, so if you're constructing a, uh, a usage, you need to remember that the I goes first in all of those constructions um, uh, because no one has ever heard of uh, um, uh, Toctic or uh, Chat Shit. Uh, um, so uh, that's my uh, a brief uh, sponsored, uh, grammarian sponsored to, uh, uh, intervention. Uh, uh, Megan, uh, uh, the OFAC advisory uh, that we covered last, um, my impression is that it has produced more confusion and more controversy than we had about ransomware payments to people who are on the uh, specially designated national list than there was before. Fair? Yes. Um, well, so I, I didn't quite catch the the, um, the summary that you all gave the other week, but the concern now is, okay, 
okay, in fact, now that you think that you've actually uh, made things more clear, you've, you've muddied the waters, not to, to uh, make a pun on the Iranian group of a similar name here, but um, you see a, 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 the press saying that some of the companies, incident response companies and the like, that are helping entities out with ransomware um, are not necessarily going to change their behavior. Um, so, okay, OFAC, what's next? If, if that didn't work, now what are you going to try to to reduce the uh, the abundance of, of people negotiating with with otherwise designated, especially designated nationals and the like? But they're going to have to they're going to have to uh, clarify that formally or informally. Uh, and then uh, just two quick hits, uh, or maybe three. Uh, we have yet to cover the fact that uh, the Justice Department is going after Google in an antitrust case that's becoming absolutely certain uh, as the leaks uh, proliferate and get more specific, but we haven't seen any details on the case itself. So we're going to have to wait until it's filed to, to discuss it. Uh, uh, Elon Musk's uh, Tesla apparently can be fooled just by projecting uh, uh, pictures uh, uh, or even something less than a picture onto various uh, items, uh, stop signs, human beings. Uh, um, uh, famously, uh, Elon Musk refused to use LIDAR, which actually measures the existence of, a, of a, uh, a, an item in front of you as opposed to using cameras, which he tends to use. So this is probably a unique AI problem for Tesla, I'm guessing. Uh, and uh, the uh, the New York Department of Financial Services has said there's something wrong with Twitter. Uh, if it fails, it could produce uh, a, a catastrophic financial uh, uh, outcome if the security fails, and therefore Twitter needs to be regulated. Uh, 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 my quick analysis is that if uh, – uh, Twitter is systemically important to the uh, uh, financial markets of the United States, then there's something wrong with the financial markets of the United States. But uh, uh, in any event, uh, we are going to hear uh, uh, more from the Department of Financial Services about regulating Twitter, uh, and it couldn't happen to a nicer whale. Um, Listen, thanks uh, to the Roundup panel. Uh, I'm going to switch now to uh, our interview with Ron Diebert. Uh, uh, as I introduced him earlier, uh, he is the director of the C Citizen Lab, and he's just finished a book that was actually a lecture series, uh, um, a pretty prestigious lecture series in Canada. Um, and he turned it into a book called Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society. And uh, I, the title does kind of tell you what the theme is, uh, uh, Ron. Uh, if I understand your uh, thesis, it's that uh, the the internet has gone in a direction at the hands of social media in particular uh, that wasn't anticipated, uh, that is producing disasters, and that we need to uh, not quite nuke it from orbit, but we need to reset it so that we have uh, uh, a, an internet and a social media industry that serves social good rather than dystopian uh, uh, values. Uh, is that fair? 
That's a, that's a pretty good uh, back of jacket summary, uh, Stuart, I would say. Um, let, let, let me just mention something about those lectures. They are quite prestigious in, in Canada for your listeners who are outside of Canada. The Massey lectures go back to 1961 and have had luminaries like Martin Luther King Jr., Margaret Atwood, John Kenneth Galbraith, and so on. So it's a, it's a very, it's a great honor to do this. And it also means that um, the lectures are, are not academic per se. They're meant to be engaging, storytelling, and so on. Um, so it was a chance to write differently than as an academic I normally do, which was a lot of fun. Um, and broadly speaking, yeah, I had two aims in, in writing this book. One was to summarize what I see as the painful truths, not just of social media, but the entire communications ecosystem. Um, you know, I've been swimming in this uh, ocean of digital data and security issues for more than well, close to three decades. And, you know, uh, uh, having spent my entire career studying it and all the work that we do at the Citizen Lab, I recognize that, you know, the, the people were looking at different parts of the picture here and there was a, a need to kind of pull all, all of this together. Um, the reason I call them painful truths, uh, truths because I do think there is an emerging consensus about these problems. People, even people who are not specialists, who are not experts, are beginning to recognize there are some serious problems. And then painful because, well, acknowledging them in their entirety is really daunting. It's a, it's a big set of interlocking mechanisms that are producing the outcomes that we see, the pathologies that we see on a daily basis, from data breaches to disinformation to the type of targeted espionage, often with lethal consequences that we study at the Citizen Lab, to something that uh, I found is uh, often overlooked, the enormous environmental drain that all of these technologies are causing and the sustainability problems around a lot of it. So that was the first aim, was to pull all of that together. And the bulk of the book is about, about that synthesis. And then the second part was to say, well, what are we going to do about it? And here I would say there's, there's bad news and good news. So the bad news is, um, you know, it doesn't take a a specialist to look around and even your summary of some of the stories you're talking about this morning illustrate this, that there are so many ad hoc, contradictory, reactive solutions being proposed, most of them by technologists or Silicon Valley people or people deep inside the beltway. And it can be very confusing. I mean, you know, should we break up Facebook and other tech giants or reform them from within with some kind of corporate social responsibility. So what I wanted to do was kind of take a step back. And this is where the reset comes in to say, hold on, let's take a step back. And the good news is that we don't need to invent some new fancy cyber theory to deal with all of this. Uh, what I wanted to do was point out that there is a long tradition of theorizing about privacy, security, liberty, uh, that goes back millennia, in fact, that is connected to the liberal Republican tradition. And as part of that excavation that I do um, of political philosophy connected to that tradition, I zero in on this concept of restraint, which is at the heart of all forms of, of liberalism, frankly, uh, right across the, the spectrum. The idea that we want to restrain uh, the concentration and hence abuse of power, whether that's in the hands of big corporate giants or in the hands of the state. And so, you know, the book essentially is 
laying out and, and trying to explore some of the ways we might draw from those concepts and that tradition and apply them to some of the problems we see today. So uh, it, that that all makes some sense. The idea is to say we have these large corporations. We need to – they've gotten a whole lot bigger, a whole lot faster than we imagined. And uh, some of the consequences of that are not what we wanted. Uh, to my mind, it's their control of national discourse uh, and who can speak and who can't speak and putting in the hands of a bunch of uh, uh, 26-year-old woke wokeistas is, is not my idea of uh, d democratic civil discourse. Uh, uh, but there are other possibilities. If you're uh, a liberal, you might say, I don't want these guys deciding whether Proposition 24 passes in uh, California. California by what they allow people to say or not say about a particular ballot initiative. Uh, so, but your your notion, I think, is to say they exist. Let's make our peace with them by finding uh, ways to create other power centers, other uh, mechanisms for constraining or restraining the sweep of their power uh, in their current form. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, and this is not, you know, uh, a big, uh, you know, news flash. I think a lot of people are cottoning on to this. As your discussion earlier pointed out, there's a healthy debate about Section 230, about antitrust now. So finally, people are waking up the, to the fact that, you know, there was a period of time when these platforms benefited by the insulation that they had from uh, state regulation. And I'm not just talking about in the United States. I mean, after all, these are uh, companies that are, you know, the center of gravity is in the United States, but we're living in a, in a global networked environment. And I think the time has come where we need to think about, well, what would intelligent regulation in the public interest look like? And uh, part of that, I think, uh, has to involve uh, zeroing in on the enormous power that these companies has, as you're pointing out, to, to control national discourse through algorithms and, that are largely proprietary, hidden from public scrutiny, and yet have such enormous influence over the shape of our public sphere. I mean, that uh, is one example of where we need to think more carefully about how we uh, prevent that from happening in the future, especially now in the time of a pandemic when we see these tech platforms uh, really coming out stronger, positioning themselves as more central to our lives, I think it's imperative that we have a right to be able to understand what's going on beneath the surface of all of this technology that surrounds us. I, that all sounds right until you think about what it would mean to have government deciding how these companies could uh, address national discourse. And I actually think that the, the COVID-19 speech suppression scheme that we've seen uh, uh, tells us something about what's wrong with that. Uh, uh, the, uh, that is government-regulated speech because what, the, uh, what, what Twitter and Facebook have said and Google is – we're going to defer to authoritative voices, wow, which turn out to be government voices, WHO uh, representing the governments of the world. Uh, that's authoritative. That's not what I'm talking about, though, Stuart. I think you're, I think you're missing the point here. Um, I'm not suggesting that we substitute private 
uh, you know, management of public discourse with government doing that or some willy nilly, you know, deference to some vague notion of authority. What I'm talking about is some clear set of principles and oversight mechanisms that could be applied that these companies would abide by that don't leave us in a position where one month they're doing one thing, which is, you know, react reactionary to something, maybe Trump tweets to the next month doing something completely opposite and leaving everyone scratching their heads. That's basically where we're at because you have, frankly, um, largely immature people who run these platforms scrambling to try to respond to current events. What we need are a set of standards and we need independent scrutiny as well. Now, that, that could come from a government. It could come from other mechanisms as well. Restraint doesn't have to involve governments dictating public speech, obviously. That's not an argument I make. But so governments could do things that are more content neutral, like transparency, or if you have a, 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 a rule, you should follow it. And if you're not going to follow the rule, you should change the rule and you should explain what you're doing so can, people can tell whether you're following the rule. Those are all things that, that government could demand that are not content focused. Uh, um, and indeed, that, that's what the FCC could do with the uh, uh, provision on defining good faith if they, uh, if they have jurisdiction as uh, I think they do and Mark thinks they don't. Uh, uh, and in any event, Congress could uh, uh, do that. Uh, I think that's pretty plausible uh, as a way of dealing with the discourse issue or at least a first step. But I, I was surprised how many of your solutions seem to uh, uh, relate to imp- increasing privacy protections. I mean, I, I understand people want more privacy if they're asked, but they don't particularly care about their privacy when they're actually on the sites. Um, a, but how does that really address these broader uh, dystopian tendencies in social media? So I, I would disagree with you. I, I actually don't think a lot of my proposals have to do with privacy per se. I think privacy is a very important right, and I think it's essential to a liberal democratic society. But what I'm really zeroing in on in much of these proposed recommendations and solutions is about preventing the abuse of power. You'll notice at the front of the book, I have a quotation from Montesquieu about the abuse of power. That's really uh, the touchstone for me here. And people often confuse the two. You often hear people say, you know, I've got nothing to hide, so I'm not worried about the state or Google looking at everything that that I'm doing. um, And hence, I don't care about privacy. Well, that's confused because what people really should be worried about is when big governments or companies have access to data and they're using it without any type of independent scrutiny or checks and balances that protect against the abuse of power. Those who are in positions of power, and let's face it, we're living in a time when despotism and autocracy are flourishing worldwide. They do not care whether you, Stuart Baker, or I, Ron Debert, have something to hide. They thrive by victimizing other innocent people. This is the story of authoritarianism. And the whole point of Republican, liberal Republican uh, architectures, political architectures, is to restrain the abuse of power. So privacy for me is, is kind of secondary to that overarching uh, goal. That said, I think we have to recognize that the business model that underlies all of this, which 
has you know popularly been described thanks to Shoshana Zuboff as surveillance capitalism has some serious pathologies around privacy. I mean, we every day on your show, I'm sure you talk about this. We see data breaches like they're, they're as as common as as the sun coming up. And why is that? Well, it's because the business model of this entire ecosystem rests on startups, innovators, big tech platforms combined drilling deeper and deeper into our personal lives with as many sensors as they possibly can to gather data points about us to sell to the advertisers that you were talking about earlier. Largely, the uh, negative consequences around that are passed on to consumers. And there are very few liabilities. That needs to be cleaned up. Um, The location tracking industry is a cesspool. I mean, I see this... uh, Almost every week in the work that we do at the Citizen Lab, where you have bad actors, whether they're nation state espionage actors or private intelligence firms, exploiting the fact that you have this insecure, poorly regulated and prone to abuse location tracking industry that orbits around like parasites of the data that's being vacuumed up from our daily lives. Now, at the at the heart of this. So let me stop you there because I, th- I think yeah. th- that this is a good example. Uh, the fact is that um, letting third parties know our location has enormous benefits from just getting driving instructions to knowing what where the closest uh, um, place we can buy something is. Sure, but it, sure. But but Stuart, it also has enormous risks. I and that means it's going to get out, doesn't it? It, do, it does potentially have enormous benefits. That's absolutely true. However, when it is a, like it is today, a poorly regulated, insecure environment, the prospects of abuse of power are demonstrably evident all around the world, right? These spyware companies are now selling uh, boutique espionage services to dictators that allow them to get inside targets phones without so much as sending them a malware attachment. Well, your your regulation is not going to stop that kind of an attack. Uh, uh, Telling Google they have to be more careful with their uh, location data isn't going to solve that problem, is it? I'm not necessarily talking about Google. I'm talking about the entire ecosystem that is built around the notion that uh, a whole bewildering array of companies can parasitically thrive off of trading and selling location data of consumers drawn from myriad of applications that most of us install on our devices that give themselves uh, permission overreach. That just seems like two different problems. So, yes, there are, you know, I, I, I find it obnoxious that my flashlight wants to know my location. That uh, It's more than obnoxious. But when North Korea comes for me, uh, uh, they're going to get uh, they're going to use an app that gets direct access to my GPS. They're not going to count on advertising uh, of uh, 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 from a flashlight. You're company. fundamentally wrong. You're fun- you're fundamentally wrong, Stuart. The the companies that you're talking about that make those applications gather data, as much data as they can, typically permission overreach is the norm. They then sell that data to other third parties. Most of them have very little professional responsibility or understanding of proper norms around warrantless access. And so we're seeing routinely here in Canada, as much as anywhere else in the world, law enforcement uh, treating this data as, as if it's public. In the public domain, and yeah, they're buying. Um, you know, 
they're buying it. Now, what do you think? That the uh, dictators in UAE, in Egypt, in Saudi Arabia are not doing the same thing? I can tell you factually that's incorrect. Uh, there are companies like NSO and Circles that have built entire infrastructures around the fact that they can access this type of poorly regulated, insecure data. So this is, you're, you're saying this is, separ- this is completely separate from hacking people's phones. They can, they can do a lot of intelligence collection on people without ever getting into their phones just by going to commercial databases that are sold uh, on the gray market. Uh, 100%. And then under, underlying it is the entire protocol that runs cellular and telecommunications traffic called SS7, which is also insecure, p- poorly regulated, prone to abuse, originally set up in the 1970s to allow telecommunications companies to pass off their customers as they move from one jurisdiction to another. But of course, in many parts of the world, telcos are in the back pocket of security agencies, and those security agencies can then access that type of data and be able to pinpoint people's location, as I said, often with lethal consequences. So there there is a cesspool here that we need to clear. I I think you're overstating the, the, what has, the, the, advantages governments have gotten from these technologies. I I think if you were writing a, how can we restrain government's uh, use of these technologies article 15 years ago, you would have said, how about we get some companies that that are big enough and profitable enough and committed enough to uh, 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 using data in a way that they can demonstrate is responsible and create them as a countervailing power to the power of the state uh, because uh, they will not think it's a good advertisement for their service or their phones uh, if the government can get into them. And they will actually develop privacy technologies that lock governments out of their uh, um, their technology. And that's exactly what has happened with Google, with Apple, uh, uh, with Microsoft. They all are committed to making life harder for governments. Sorry, did I just miss a story you were all summarizing about uh, access to Google's search through uh, basically mass surveillance to the state? So, no, it's not mass surveillance. They are asking who was here in the critical period. And it turned out there was only one person who uh, who uh, was there, uh, they, who had done a search of this in the 24 hours beforehand. Uh, and it was one person. That doesn't strike me as a mass search. Uh, you have to be ideologically committed to not liking it to, to say that's a mass search. That's, that's clearly, it clearly is dragnet surveillance. But I want to go back to um, a point you made earlier about overstating you know, the capabilities afforded to governments here. I actually disagree fundamentally with that. I think what we are witnessing right now is a great leap forward in policing and intelligence capabilities that has been largely overlooked, connected to digital technologies. Let me give you one example. Um, We spent at Citizen Lab a lot of time, as you know, investigating the surveillance around Jamal Khashoggi's inner circle, which led to his murder and execution. Uh, 20, 30 years ago, a person uh, like Omar uh, Abdulaziz, the, the person that we identified in Canada, whose phone was hacked, he was a close confidant of Hoshoji, they could leave a country like Saudi Arabia, seek asylum in a place like Canada. They may not be completely immune from the reach of the Saudi state, but they had a degree of protection. Fast forward to today, 
Thanks to companies like Israel's NSO group, Saudi Arabia can reach into Omar's back pocket and stare back at him through his device. That, that is something that uh, is um, causing an enormous shift in the landscape of state capabilities over those they want to monitor. And in the case of autocrats and dictators who lack the type of checks and balances that we care about, they're doing this in a largely unrestrained manner. So we're witnessing a fundamental transformation in state power today that is happening in the absence of safeguards. It's like we have 21st century policing governed by 20th and 19th century safeguards. And what I'm arguing in the book is we need to revisit the concept of restraint, not just with respect to the social media platforms, but to the agencies of the state as well, for obvious reasons. Yeah, I'm I'm much more skeptical of that. And I think you could, for every story about how uh, uh, authoritarians can reach into our society, and I agree that that is a problem and we uh, should address it. I don't think it's principally a problem of private enterprise. It's a problem of authoritarian governments. You could, you could demonstrate, to, as we used to believe was inevitable, that these technologies are loosening state controls. Uh, um, certainly, that's how Putin thought, uh, felt in 2012 when he almost uh, was run out of office because Twitter and Facebook were allowing people to communicate their displeasure with his electoral uh, uh, tactics uh, uh, and in a way that wasn't possible in the Soviet Union because the technologies weren't available. I, uh, we are being interpenetrated in both directions. Mm, yeah, I think, I think that's ahistorical to look at it that way. Um, if you go back, you're absolutely right, 2012, Putin, 2011, 2010, the events leading up to the Arab Spring, even prior to that, uh, the Green Revolution in Iran, um, all of these were marvelous to behold. And many people looked at it and thought, this is evidence of exactly what you're talking about. This is some kind of new type of social movement, people power, that's going to enable civil society and democracy to flourish. Well, the dictators, people like Putin and autocrats in, in the Gulf and elsewhere around the world, drew the exact opposite conclusion. They said, how are we going to prevent this from happening again? You made a point about private enterprise. This doesn't have to do with private enterprise. You're, you're absolutely wrong about that. That acknowledgement and recognition by those client states has led to a bonanza for all sorts of private intelligence, mass surveillance, private enterprise. These companies operate largely in a poorly regulated, I would say even unregulated space right now. They're able to sell to uh, these type of clients without any recourse for the type of often lethal consequences that arise from the type of tools that they're providing to them. And this is leading to a new type of superpowered authoritarianism, which is precisely why, and the figures spell it out, part of the reason why we're seeing this troubling descent into authoritarianism worldwide. It's not the only reason, but it's one of, one of the key reasons, I would say. And it's a major threat to civil society. So I, I, you know, I, I, I should say, Ron, I, I just love arguing with Canadians because 
in the most polite and uh, uh, calm way, you say things like, you're absolutely wrong. That's completely a historical. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm surprised you haven't uh, uh, called me an ignorant slut yet uh, in the Saturday Night Live uh, <laughs> uh, uh, tradition. But uh, I, I do want to come back to you. Well, that yeah, would be course. rude. <laughs> <laughs> it, would be, it would be the nicest uh, way of saying it, I'm sure. Uh, but sure, you can find um, what you might call the cockroaches of private enterprise who are uh, in this uh, enabling this. These are people, these are companies for whom $50 million annual revenue is a big deal. Uh, regulating uh, Facebook well, is not going to change. That's incorrect. Okay. Uh, well, you're confusing things. We're talking now about this particular ecosystem of private intelligence firms, spyware companies, uh, mass surveillance uh, providers, deep packet inspection provisioners. This is a major multi-billion dollar industry. There's a reason why um, large inf investment firms in the United States like Francisco Partners and others have bought into these companies or trying to clean up uh, their, their the public facing parts of them. They hire uh, lawyers and dark PR firms to try to clean up their image. This is big business. It's not some trivial sideshow. And it's something that uh, these, these governments are capitalizing on. Your regulatory proposals are uh, if I can say in the nicest possible way, completely hopeless and unrealistic uh, as long as the Chinese, who have an enormous incentive to develop all these technologies for their own purposes, have the ability to sell them around the world. Uh, and we are not going to regulate China's decision to enter that market and offer those services. That, that's a very good point. And I, I think it's worth pausing on for a minute because I, I share your concerns. I think that we're you know, most of the companies that I'm describing here, and again, we're talking purely about, you know, the provisioning of services and products to government security agencies, that market, not leaving aside the Googles and Facebooks of the world. Yes, that we most of these companies have come from the West up until now. It won't be long before there are Chinese and Indian and other companies making it much more difficult to regulate. But what I'm confused by is, well, what's the alternative? I think that we need to get our house in order, starting in our own backyards, before we can do anything about the so-called China problem, which I agree is enormous. Okay. Well, so we, we probably do agree on that. I, I feel like this is sort of uh, Western uh, uh, gnashing of teeth and tearing of, uh, of garments uh, about our guilt when it, this is going to happen no matter what we do. Uh, but let me take you back to big social um, and maybe, uh, maybe to sort of wrap this up. Um, one of the things I was disappointed by is you were surprisingly dismissive of what I think is the more promising approach to uh, uh, at least the discourse control, which is to find ways to break these companies up. They, they, they depend on network effects that are more fragile than I think most people understand. Uh, and we could probably spur competition uh, to the point where there were uh, services that said, uh, Come with us; it'll cost you more, but we'll protect your data better. Uh, or come with us, and we will not cons uh, we will not treat you as a racist just because you're a conservative. Um, a and all of that would address also the overweening power that four or five of these companies now have to uh, 
to influence Congress and the executive branch as well as the public discourse. You don't much don't think much of that uh, approach. No, I'm surprised that you found me dismissive in that regard. Everything you just said uh, just now, I, I I pretty much agree with. In fact, I think that. There's a section in the conclusion of the book where I talk about antitrust. You, you, you talked, you said, okay. gee whiz, we could break it up, but it's just like breaking up a spider's uh, nest. You end up with a lot uh -huh. more of those so, uh, well, uh, ravenous creatures than you had before. No, no. Well, what, what I'm talking about there, uh, it, they're not mutually exclusive, first of all. What I'm saying is that if we simply just break up these companies without addressing the underlying business model, and the pathologies connected to it, in other words, surveillance capitalism, we will just be left with an ecosystem full of little Googles and Facebooks, which will uh, amplify the problem. Uh, I think antitrust is an important lever that we need to explore. I'm grateful that people are debating it. I wish that there was, and this is part of the aim of the book, is to remind people that originally it had as much a political as it did an economic justification. It's not just about encouraging competition, it's about preventing the concentration and hence abuse of power, which clearly, as you point out, when you have these major tech platforms dominating the public sphere uh, is a huge problem. Yeah, this is this is Lewis Brandeis's view of, exactly. of antitrust. It's just to atomize industry so that these uh, big businessmen cannot dominate our uh, uh, organs of government. Uh, uh, very interesting, probably completely out of fashion for the last uh, hundred years, uh, uh, but with roots that go back to Jefferson. Absolutely. Okay, uh, uh, Ron, I, we could go on forever, but uh, I'm going to uh, call a, a, a truce. Uh, it's been a real pleasure uh, uh, to, uh, to talk to you again, uh, and uh, it was a fun book to read, I, uh, both accessible and challenging, especially for somebody uh, who only agreed probably with about 25% of it. Uh, uh, but uh, the, the topic is, uh, the title is Reset, uh, uh, and the uh, sub, uh, subtitle is Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society. Stuart, thank you, for, thank you for reading the book and for having me on your show. And it's always a pleasure to have a back and forth with you about about these topics. It is fun. It's very Canadian. I, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, so thanks also to Charles Eleput, uh, uh, Mark McCarthy, Megan Stiffel, uh, and David Chris uh, uh, for joining me on today's uh, episode. Uh, thanks also to Ken Weissman of Weissman Sound Design for contributing a new uh, uh, musical intro. This has been episode 334 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, uh, Send us your questions and comments at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com, and we'll send you a mug if you uh, uh, suggest someone who ought to come on, and they do come on. I, I occasionally will tweet uh, the stories we're thinking about running and ask people to give us a, uh, uh, a suggestion for uh, uh, which ones they think are best. And so if you follow me at Stuart Baker uh, on Twitter, you can uh, uh, contribute to our design of the uh, uh, show. Uh, 
So, and please rate the show, uh, leave us a review. If it's a good review or it's an entertainingly bad review, we will read it on the air. Here's one that uh, just came in from Toquam. Uh, uh, remarkably solid podcast after years. Yeah, tell me about it, Toquam. Uh, these are solid experts, polite, good-humored, friendly, and always worth listening. Uh, the news often far exceeds ordinary media in breadth, but also in well-informed depth in law, computer science, but also practical common sense. Book reviews are informative and the books are often well worth reading. The guests are remarkable. Well, thank you. Uh, and um, if you leave us a, a, a review, we'll probably read it unless it's uh, abusive and dumb. Uh, please join us again next week to see if we found a few abusive and dumb reviews to read. Uh, and as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.